0: Hi listeners, it's Carter, here to tell you about an incredible event celebrating the launch of ParCast's first book, Cults. On July 13th, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together for a night of true crime to remember, and you can be part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and so much more. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. It's a wonderful cause and an evening perfect for any true crime fan, but time is running out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com/colts. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Colts. So don't wait. Sign up at parcast.com/colts.
1: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of sex, pornography and violence. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In the wake of World War II, millions fled Eastern Europe to seek refuge in the world's democratic nations. Many arrived in the United States. These immigrants hoped for stability after a nightmarish few years. They wanted a simpler, more peaceful way of life. They wanted the American dream. But as the decades crawled by, Americans of every stripe began to realize this dream was only available to a lucky few. And even those who obtained it often felt trapped within its rigid confines as the ideals that supported it became outdated. Like many women of her time, May Greinader put her dreams on hold to raise a family. As a wife and mother, this obligation fell on her shoulders without question. But despite her love for her children and her ambitious husband, this lifestyle suffocated May's independent spirit. Ironically, even though she had sacrificed so much for her family, it was May's husband, Dirk, who felt trapped by her. And for this, the doctor's wife paid the ultimate price. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to, do no harm but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on medical murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to add some medical insight for Alastair in our case of Dr. Dirk Reiniger, a well-trained allergist whose overly zealous choices led him into some dark and dangerous corners.
1: You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type medical murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Dirk Greineder, a renowned allergist who accomplished everything he set out to achieve, but still found himself feeling trapped. Today, we'll discuss the secret life Dirk forged, his marriage and its tragic ending. Next week, we'll explore the fallout of his wife's gruesome murder and the question of who killed May Grinida. All this and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies.
1: And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling
0: off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And
2: industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism.
0: The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In the fall of 1958, 18-year-old Dirk Greineder landed in the U.S. and headed north up the East Coast. Born in Germany and raised in Lebanon, he'd left behind his parents to chase what he felt he couldn't have there – wealth and prominence. He'd begin at Yale, pursuing his pre-med studies. The day he moved into his dorm, Dirk breathed in the air of accomplishment around him. When Dirk made it to his room, he was greeted by his new roommate, Thomas Young. Tom was an easy-going art history major from Baltimore, a sharp contrast to the quiet, determined Dirk. Even though their personalities differed, the young men struck up a friendship, though most of the time they spent together occurred in their dorm between classes. When it came to the college experience, they had very different approaches. According to Tom Farmer and Marty Foley, authors of A Murder in Wellesley, Tom did well in school, but he also liked the occasional party. Meanwhile, Dirk zeroed in on perfection. He not only immersed himself in his coursework, but he also excelled on the swim team. Even his more creative pursuits served as resume items, like posing nude for art students. Dirk marveled at Tom's ability to have fun and get good grades, and perhaps wondered why he had a more difficult time striking that balance. He likely chalked it up to a tougher major and all his extracurriculars. He'd come all this way for a Yale education after all. He had to keep his eye on the prize.
2: Although a bit of an overachiever, Dirk's focus was certainly understandable. He'd accomplished a major feat by getting into an Ivy League program, and I'm sure he appreciated the rarefied air he was breathing. Pre-med students are faced with an immense workload from day one, so Dirk no doubt felt that pressure. On top of this, the daunting curriculum can at times make students feel intimidated and overwhelmed. I remember plenty of occasions when difficult coursework would make me question my capability or how competent of a doctor I'd ultimately turn out to be. In this way, I empathize with Dirk and I understand the comfort derived from his drive toward excellence. We all basically have this intense approach, Alistair, but everyone had some sort of outlet. Although demanding in terms of time, the physicality of Dirk's swimming must have given him some helpful balance in his routine. Regardless, though, a career in medicine necessitates an unwavering determination that comes with a price. According to Friends, Dirk
1: had tightly wound energy about him. He seemed stressed out. But as the semesters went on and Dirk's hard work earned him top grades, he found ways to enjoy himself. Friends noticed his sharp sense of humor for the first time. Dirk's charm and wit soon caught the attention of many women on campus. While Dirk never took to keggers and tailgates like Tom might have, he quickly realized that the dating scene was exactly his kind of fun. Dirk shed his bookworm reputation, becoming known as a playboy. And not just among Yale women. Every fall when he returned from summer break in Lebanon, he regaled his friends with stories of his Middle Eastern escapades. His friends could hardly believe how many ladies he, well, charmed. But on another level, it made sense. Dirk had finally found an outlet for his stress. After finding a more balanced life, Dirk graduated from Yale in 1962 with a degree in chemistry. He and his first college friend, Tom Young, shook hands and parted ways. At least, for now. Dirk was now on his way to the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, the largest biomedical research institution in Ohio, where he'd pursue a dual MD-PhD program in medicine and pharmacology. He wanted a career that also focused on research in addition to treating patients
2: directly. Broadly speaking, pharmacology is the study of drugs and medications and how they work within the body. Pharmacologists test and create medications that help cure, prevent and treat diseases. For this, they must study biological specimens and their response to these medications and train and supervise the lab technicians that assist them in their work. While pharmacology focuses primarily on research, clinical pharmacology takes this science a step further by applying it to patient care and matching specific drugs to targeted treatment options. Most healthcare professionals rely heavily on clinical pharmacologists to help them best manage their patients' myriad illnesses. Specifically, how our patients respond to certain drugs at different doses, how particular medications interact with each other in the body, and how drugs should best be prescribed in an outpatient or inpatient setting. For a chemistry major like Dirk with an interest in clinical research, this dual pharmacology degree was an excellent path to embark upon.
1: Based on his career choice, it seems that Dirk's introverted nature hadn't vanished. So it's also unsurprising that he buried himself in schoolwork once again. But just like at Yale, it seems he turned to womanizing as a stress outlet. Unlike his undergrad days, though, Dirk found someone special. Within the first couple years of his program, Dirk met Mabel Chegwin, or May to her friends. Born in Columbia in 1941, May eventually moved to the US, where she went to New York City's Hunter College. Her family knew her as headstrong and independent. She'd moved halfway across the country to pursue a graduate degree in nursing. May shared Dirk's vision for a life of high achievement, but being young, they were still figuring out how to get there. They dated off and on for a few years. It's possible that Dirk's more adventurous side got in the way of his commitment but he never lost touch with may in the mid-1960s may started teaching at case western dirk was still in medical school there and doing well perhaps their promising futures caused them both to think more seriously about their lives because around that time they decided to take the next step in their relationship soon dirk introduced may to his parents. But this brought some skeletons out of Dirk's closet. You see, Dirk's family was originally from Germany and had a history of involvement with the Nazi party. It appears that Dirk's parents retained some of those prejudiced views. They disapproved of May's Colombian background. This likely hurt May, but it seems that she loved Dirk enough to try and win his parents' favor. She studied the German language, culture, and learned to cook traditional German foods. The elder Grinaders were pleased with May's willingness to become more like them and to make their son happy. Dirk must have been equally pleased as he asked May for her hand in marriage. They wed on June 8, 1968. The newlyweds moved to Manhattan, where Dirk began his residency. Up to this point, May seemed to be progressing in her career. But when she found out she was pregnant, she knew her ambitions would have to take a back seat. Given the social norms of the time, there was no question that she'd stay home and care for their child. Nevertheless, she was thrilled to become a mother. Her career would still be there later. When May gave birth to the couple's first child, Kirsten, she and Dirk were over the moon. Parenthood was everything they thought it would be, including expensive. Money was already tight since Dirk was still in his residency, and even more so now that May wasn't working. But the couple pushed those worries to the backs of their minds. They didn't want to spoil the pride and joy they shared, They were both immigrants who worked hard for everything they accomplished and now they were growing their family. Over the next few years, they had two more children, Britt and Colin. During this time, Dirk continued climbing the career ladder. He completed his residency and began work as a full-fledged doctor. He accepted a new job, only to find a better one soon after. He even received training as an allergist. Eventually. Dirk landed at the premier medical research institution known today as Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. It was a coveted opportunity. Dirk felt on top of the world. He and May sought to put down roots somewhere that reflected all their hard work, somewhere affluent. They ended up in Wellesley, a Boston suburb chequered with mansions and lush green lawns. Dirk and May moved into a white, split-level home with a two-car garage. But while the house had enough room for a family of five, apparently, it wasn't as large or elegant as some of their neighbors. Perhaps the Grinaders wanted to reach a higher level of success, and that's why Dirk began working at a second healthcare facility as an allergist. The move also allowed him to continue
2: his research and see more patients on the side. It's pretty common for doctors to double down on employment like this, as it can be really lucrative. The extra work would have certainly bumped Dirk and his family into a higher level of financial comfort, and on top of this, it would have given him more expertise and experience within his field. From my own perspective and understanding, though, this course of action is usually a monetary decision. Despite the prestige that came with Dirk's hiring, by what would become the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, he may have still felt underpaid. Although institutions like these are highly respected and sought after, their practitioners are paid a set salary. The additional allergist job likely would have been a simple way for Dirk to make some extra money. However, it wouldn't be without its hard work or time commitment. Luckily, Dirk seemed like someone who had the intensity and drive to sustain that kind of schedule and workload based on his track record. All of Dirk's
1: hard work paid off. He became board certified in both internal medicine and allergy and immunology. He published well-received papers on childhood asthma. Patients from all around sought his expertise and fellow doctors noted that Dirk's patients regularly saw improvements. Dirk wasn't only respected at work, he was also beloved at home. He had breakfast with his kids each morning and coached their soccer teams. Friends and family saw the Greinners as the perfect American family. And the Grinders couldn't have agreed more. As the children got older, Dirk had them fill their schedules much like he always had. This included swimming, one of his old Yale sports. And that wasn't the only way Dirk nudged his children to follow in his footsteps. He and May both encouraged their kids to pursue Ivy League educations and careers in medicine. When their eldest daughter Kirsten was the first to graduate high school, the entire family was thrilled at the news of her acceptance to Yale, especially Kirsten. But when the party balloons deflated, it became time to plan. For Dirk, the primary breadwinner, this meant getting Kirsten's tuition in order. Panic likely boiled in his chest as he added up the costs. If all three children went to a private university like Yale and then medical school after that, it could easily cost him upwards of $400,000. Whatever his concerns were, it seems Dirk was able to push them down. He had so much going for him, It would all work itself out. He'd make sure of it. Coming up, Dirk Greineder creates a second life.
0: Hi, listeners. It's Carter with some
1: truly exciting news.
0: To commemorate the launch of Colts, Parcast's first book, Crime Junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together on July 13th for an in-person and virtual experience you do not want to miss. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature a live Q&A about the book, an exclusive meet and greet, and a discussion on all things true crime. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. It's an amazing organization near and dear to both Ashley and Max, and another great reason to enjoy this wonderful night. And it's just days away, so visit parcast.com slash cults to register today. You can also catch the event virtually on Spotify Live if you are unable to join us in person. All attendees will get a signed copy of the book and a night they'll never forget. July 13th is fast approaching, so be sure to join Ashley Flowers and Max Cutler for a very special evening celebrating the release of Parcast's new book, Cults, All for an incredible cause. Register today at parcast.com cults.
1: Now, back to the story. By the 1990s, Dirk Greinerder often worried about keeping up with the Joneses, especially when his eldest daughter was accepted into his pricey alma mater, Yale. Though Dirk managed to figure out the financials, he certainly faced mounting stress. Especially when his other two children also got into Yale. And it couldn't have been easy when his youngest Colin graduated, only to move right back in with his parents. Colin spent the summer of 1997 figuring out his future plans, and he often found himself using his father's computer to check his email. One day, he accidentally opened the browser history. Colin's eyes widened as he scanned a list of dozens of hardcore pornography sites. From there, he realized that his father had even downloaded an entire library of explicit images. Colin snapped the laptop shut. His mind reeled. Before this moment, he believed his parents' marriage was nothing less than perfect, He could hardly imagine his father going behind his mother's back like this. At the same time, he wondered if he should get involved. It wasn't his business after all. But it was clear that something was going on with his father. He didn't mention his startling discovery to his father. And when he used the computer a few days later, he couldn't stop himself from peeking at the browser history again. Nothing new showed up. It seemed his father's explicit activities had subsided. Colin hoped it was just a one-time thing, a momentary lapse in his father's judgment. That August, Colin went out of town for a month. When he returned, he found that Dirk was once again browsing pornography. And a lot of it. That's when it occurred to him that his father probably tried to hide everything before because he realized Colin could see it. That's when Colin's concern grew. He knew he had to do something. The Grinders usually held family meetings to discuss serious matters, but this was too uncomfortable of a topic. So instead, Colin took it upon himself to erase the browser history each day. He at least wanted to keep his mother from finding it. What Colin didn't know was that Dirk and May hadn't been intimate in years may suffered from chronic and severe back pain she often wore a brace and when the pain became unbearable she'd have to lie down it's possible
2: that the condition made sex impossible if may had to wear a brace and take breaks to lie down then her pain must have been pretty consistent and severe Even without knowing the underlying cause of her issues, I can tell you that regular day-to-day movement was difficult for her, let alone more vigorous activity it seems she was suffering from some sort of spinal instability. This could indicate a number of culprits. She may have had a small fracture in her spine that was irritating a nerve, for example, or a severe expression of scoliosis, which is a curvature of the spine that can sometimes put pressure on nerves, causing pain that added to her limited mobility. May might have even been suffering from degenerative disc disease, which is a condition characterized by a gradual and painful loss of vertebral disc cushioning. The severity would have been rare given her age, but it's still a possibility. Whatever May's diagnosis, pushing her bodily limits would open her up to more pain and possibly a loss of sensory and motor function because of the spinal cord's direct interplay with the brain. Zooming out, though, Alistair, it's certainly believable that sex was out of the question for May.
1: Facing this harsh reality in his marriage was a challenge for Dirk, who'd always found an outlet in sex. During a time when his career and financial stressors were at their peak, he likely saw pornography as the only form of relief. But soon, photos and videos no longer satisfied him. Dirk began writing erotic fiction, The stories came easily to him, as they were his own, most graphic fantasies. Though he chose a name that evoked memories of a simpler, yet more exciting time in his life. Tom, his college roommate. Dirk hid his hobby from his wife. Colin was now out of the house, so Dirk didn't have to worry about his son confronting him. To outside eyes, all was still peachy over at the Greiner's. Dirk even got a promotion, Director of the Clinical Allergy Department at Brigham and Women's Hospital. It was a prestigious role, and his research started to draw national attention. But while Dirk achieved his loftiest career dreams, the pressure only mounted, which pushed him to seek another outlet. Dirk was getting older, so even though his imagination worked as well as it always had, he felt his body couldn't do the same. Luckily for him, the FDA had recently approved Viagra for commercial sale. The new pill had become a nationwide craze. It was featured on magazine covers and joked about on late night TV. As a medical professional, Dirk would have experienced this craze firsthand. Now, we don't know whether Dirk suffered from erectile dysfunction, but in the spring of 1998, he wrote himself
2: a 50 milligram prescription of Viagra. Depending on where a doctor lives and practices, self-prescribing is better regulated today than it was in the late 90s. In my experience, doctors do tend to prescribe medications to themselves or their immediate family members, primarily out of convenience. If you're ill, the most direct path to good treatment is obviously preferable. There is also the benefit of privacy that comes along with the doctor's ability to do this, which adds to the list of potential perks. Self-prescribing usually isn't a problem today because of such fast and improved oversight when it comes to specific drug categories. Nevertheless, it is still a power some doctors attempt to abuse. When it comes to a drug like Viagra,
1: Dirk would have only been putting himself at risk especially since he didn't engage with an actual partner at this time. He started bringing the pills with him on business trips, stashing them in his toiletry bag. From the privacy of his hotel rooms, he could feel like a young, virile man again. And this wasn't the only sign of Dirk trying to regain a sense of vitality. He decided that he and May had enough in their savings to renovate their home. And May was not opposed. Around this same time, she pursued changes of her own. She refreshed her wardrobe, began exercising as much as her back would allow, and even restarted her nursing education. While on the surface this seemed to be for her own fulfillment, some of May's pursuits indicate that she sensed she was losing her husband's attention and wanted to regain it. For example, May wanted to undergo an expensive facelift. However, Dirk wasn't going to be the one to pay for it but he would contribute to the home renovation. There, they had common ground. Even though Dirk didn't pay for May's cosmetic surgery, he was willing to use $40,000 of their income to update one bathroom. And it seems the couple turned a blind eye to the fact that this put them back into a hole. When May's mother fell gravely ill, Her sister, Ilse, helped pay for May's tickets to New York to see her. During one of these trips, it seems May told her sister that she wanted a facelift, but that Dirk wouldn't pay for it. Ilse then offered to cover the procedure for May. Ilse was probably happy to do it, but it did make her wonder if something was going on in her sister's marriage, especially when Dirk never visited his ailing mother-in-law. Most family members assumed he was preoccupied with his swanky new job, but in reality, Dirk was delving deeper into his sexual fantasies. One February day, Dirk called an escort service. The woman on the phone introduced herself as Elizabeth. Dirk introduced himself as Tom. He asked Elizabeth to meet him at a hotel 10 minutes from his house. At some point that afternoon, he swallowed a Viagra in preparation for his scheduled tryst. While driving to the hotel, Dirk's nerves got the better of him. In an effort to make the affair less awkward, he stopped to pick up roses and a bottle of champagne. They each arrived at the hotel lobby and Dirk presented Elizabeth with the gifts. She feigned a smile and awkwardly smelled the roses. As they made their way to the room, they struck up a conversation. Elizabeth asked if he was married. Dirk claimed that he and his wife were separated and planned on getting divorced. In reality, there's no evidence that Dirk and May even considered a separation. Dirk and Elizabeth spent nearly three hours together in the hotel room. The experience so thrilled Dirk that he called again after their first meeting We don't know how much Elizabeth charged initially but according to statements she later made to police, Dirk apparently offered her $500 an hour. A week later, Elizabeth met him at a second hotel, this time a fancier one in Boston. In the room, she found roses, champagne, chocolate-covered strawberries and an array of expensive skincare products all laid out for her. While they did spend another few hours together, this gesture apparently put her off. The next few days, Dirk paged Elizabeth over and over, but she ignored him until he gave up. Dirk was despondent. Not only had he betrayed his wife, but he'd also pushed a sex worker to the point where she wouldn't even let him pay for her services. To make matters worse, May soon found Dirk's bottle of Viagra in his toiletry bag. She asked her husband why he had it, even though they hadn't had sex in years. Dirk sheepishly admitted that he'd prescribed it to himself, but said it was for research
2: purposes. He was just curious to see if it worked. Medical researchers don't usually bring drugs home to test on themselves. Not only is it risky, it's also an invalid research method. The only advantage I can see in self-testing an FDA-approved drug would relate to checking its appropriateness for personal use, which can be safe and helpful depending on the circumstances. Given May's nursing background, paired with the publicity surrounding Viagra at the time, she should have seen right through Dirk's lazy excuse.
1: However, at least outwardly, May chose to accept this explanation. It's possible she went easy on her husband because she knew how hard he'd been working. Between the pressure and success of his career, maybe she just didn't want to complicate things. Her husband didn't seem to share that concern. For example, he kept condoms in a box in the garage labeled braces and hinges where May likely would have found them. And on July 12, 1998, he applied for a company credit card registered to Corporate Physicians, a completely made-up business. And worse, he applied for another under the name Thomas Young. It's unclear if he used either card right away. It also seems that he took a break from hiring any more sex workers. However, in June of 1999, he called another escort service. This time, he asked the woman to meet him in the hotel lobby first. Even more unusual, he requested that the woman go by the name Elizabeth, even though her real name was Deborah. It's possible that Dirk was still hung up on the real Elizabeth, the escort who'd ghosted him. Either way, the meeting was set on the day Dirk drove to the agreed-upon hotel. En route, he realized he'd forgotten his Viagra. He pulled over and wrote himself a new prescription that was twice as strong as the previous ones. He picked it up, took a dose as soon as he was back in his car, then continued on. In another odd move, rather than going by Tom this time, he checked into the hotel as Girk Greinader, he ordered champagne to the room. Things seemingly went well because Dirk booked another hotel room for the following week. We don't know if this encounter was with the same woman, but we do know that he checked in under the name Thomas Young and used the matching credit card. By this point, Dirk had completely checked out of his marriage. This meeting occurred on his and May's 31st wedding anniversary. Still, Dirk and May stayed married. Dirk had even recently suggested that May get an advance on her inheritance. Whether or not May agreed, the act only further highlighted their financial struggles to her side of the family. Her sister Ilse and other family members started becoming suspicious of Dirk. Not only was he a renowned medical researcher, But he'd already bought and renovated a beautiful home and successfully paid for three kids college they couldn't understand why he would need more money so urgently although the grinders had once been the picture of marital bliss loved ones could now see that they'd hit a rough spot they wondered if it was merely empty nest syndrome but even that wouldn't explain why dirk and may seemed so distant from each other their own children, Kirsten, Britt and Colin, saw it too. The siblings discussed it among themselves, then decided they would have an open conversation with their parents the next time they were all together at Thanksgiving. But there would be no Thanksgiving holiday at the Grinader home that year. Coming up, Dirk Grinader's dual lives combust with tragic results. Now, back to the story. By the late 90s, Dr. Dirk Grinader had resigned from his marriage and began having affairs with sex workers. At the same time, he aroused suspicion among his wife May's family when he suggested that she obtain an advance on her inheritance. Dirk and May's children were also concerned about the widening crevice in their parents' relationship. But before they could confront them, Dirk started down a path of no return. That September, Dirk purchased a few packages of nails from a local hardware store using cash. Then, in a separate transaction, he bought a two-pound drilling hammer, a specialty tool used for splitting hard surfaces such as granite. Again, he used cash to pay for the hammer and threw out the receipt. Dirk stored all of these supplies in a secret location within his home, just like he'd done with his Viagra and condoms. He didn't want May to find them. He didn't retrieve the hammer and nails for some time. Instead, he continued pursuing sexual relationships outside of his marriage. online he reconnected with a woman he'd once met at a convention years before and began sending her his erotic stories. He used the email address cosmic jockey at yahoo.com. He signed his messages as Tom, even though presumably this woman knew his real name. Most likely, Dirk wanted the woman to know that he saw himself as the protagonist of his stories. But it wasn't enough to simply share his fantasies In October of 1999, he had a weekend business trip and Dirk planned to make the most of it. On the Friday he arrived, he withdrew $400 from the ATM in his hotel. Then he searched for local escort services. Around 2.30 in the morning, he made the call. We know less about this affair than the previous ones, but we do know that Dirk called the experience uncomfortable and crass. His dissatisfaction might have been what led him to sign up for a dating website when he returned home. But this website didn't connect people looking for monogamous, romantic relationships. It was meant purely for sexual connections. Dirk set up his profile and created the username casual-guy2000. Despite being 59 years old, Dirk listed his age as 49 He also mentioned his doctorate, physical attributes, and the fact that he had grown children. There was no mention of his wife. Soon, he came across a couple who were looking for a threesome. Dirk and the couple exchanged several emails and explicit photographs. Eventually, they made plans to meet in person. Dirk signed all his correspondences as Tom. But prior to their scheduled meeting, Dirk emailed the couple to say he had a reputation to uphold and that if they were going to begin a relationship, they would have to be discreet. Dirk waited for a response. But by the next day, he still heard nothing. He emailed again and apologized for any offense he may have caused. The couple never replied. Dirk's ego was seriously wounded. He yearned to overcome the rejection. So the night before Halloween... He called Deborah, the second sex worker he'd ever hired, and tried to arrange a meeting. But according to Deborah, she never answered, and Dirk didn't leave any messages. His failure to reach Deborah must have sent him reeling. But all the while, he had to hide these feelings from May. He did his best to carry on as normal in front of his wife, including going on their weekly Sunday walk around Morses Pond near their house the next morning. The two kept up this tradition no matter how emotionally distant they'd become or how dangerous it might have been. In the past year, there'd been two violent murders of elderly people in neighborhood parks. First, a 75-year-old woman was stabbed to death in a park less than 20 miles away from the grinders' house. Then, in September of 1999, an 82-year-old man was killed with an ax also in a public park. Police struggled to identify the assailant, so even though the community had gone months without another attack, an undercurrent of fear still lingered. Morses Pond, which was actually the size of a lake and the surrounding wooded area, was a popular spot in the Wellesley neighborhood. That morning was especially busy as the day was unseasonably warm, feeling more like Easter than Halloween. The grinder's brought one of their two German shepherds, named Zephyr, with them. Once at the pond, the three set off on their usual path through the woods. From this point, we only have Dirk's word to go on. According to Dirk, soon after the trail led into the woods, May somehow slipped and twisted her already fragile back. She told Dirk to go on without her, She said she just needed to lay down for a while until she felt better. Dirk claims that he went on down the trail, which eventually spits out of the woods and onto the side of the pond. He and Zephyr walked along the water for about 10 minutes before turning back for May. All of a sudden, Zephyr, who walked unleashed, shot forward through the trees uphill and out of sight. Dirk picked up his pace but didn't rush as he figured the dog was simply having a joyful run. But as Dirk ascended over the hill, he spotted Zephyr standing over May's motionless body. Dirk stopped in his tracks. His wife's head was covered in blood and her neck sustained a slash so deep it could be seen from about 40 feet away. Marks in the dirt made it appear as though she'd been dragged on her back. Dirk fell to his knees to take her pulse. He couldn't feel one, though he noticed that her body was still warm. So he stood and scrambled through the park, trying to find help. Finally, just before 9am, he made it back to the van and used the car phone to call the police. This is when the record grows clearer. Officers arrived at the pond, along with firefighters and EMTs. One patrolman Fitzpatrick kept his distance while the EMTs took May's pulse. Even from 10 feet away, he could see that it was a formality. The woman had been dead for some time. Meanwhile, Dirk stood off to the side, his body trembling like he was sobbing, but it seemed as though he hadn't actually shed a single tear. Thinking that the husband must still be in shock, Fitzpatrick approached both to console the man and to ask what happened. In response, Dirk asked, is she dead? Then am I going to be arrested? When Detective Marty Foley arrived on the scene, he had Dirk calmly tell his version of the story. But his instincts went off when Dirk described how he tried to find a pulse by feeling May's bleeding carotid artery, and yet he had no blood on his hands. This was despite the fact that he said he hadn't washed his hands
2: since the incident. Dirk's story is fishy at best considering the massive amount of blood loss that an injury like this entails. Blood stains on his hands would have been almost impossible to completely avoid given how pressurized blood is within the neck's vessels. Sadly, May's blood would have essentially fountained out from a wound like this. There's still technically a very remote possibility that Dirk's hands could have remained clean, but this would entail May being positioned in such a way that part of her neck remained unbloodied due to gravity. In other words, it could have been that her body or head was tilted or turned in some precise way with her injury facing downward or toward the ground. This conceivably could have spared blood spatter from a given portion of her neck, thus allowing Dirk to cleanly feel some part of May's carotid artery. Again, Alistair, these are some pretty big ifs, but it's still a possibility given the information we have so far. Barring highly specific and unlikely conditions, though, the situation Dirk described definitely seems implausible.
1: The detective momentarily considered the possibility that Dirk had gone on autopilot when he found his wife's body. Perhaps he hadn't actually felt her neck. Maybe his memory was just cloudy. But as Foley looked back to his colleagues, they couldn't shake the feeling that the man was hiding something. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr Kipper for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much, Alistair.
1: We'll be back next week with part two of Dirk Greiner's story when his secret life comes to the surface and his reckoning begins. For more information on Dirk Greineder, among the many sources we used, we found A Murder in Wellesley by Tom Farmer and Marty Foley extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Eric Stankey, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, and researched by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi, it's Carter,
0: here to remind you that a very special evening with crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler is just days away. It's an event celebrating the release of ParCast's first book, Cults, and you can be a part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles on July 13th and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and more. Plus, all ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. This has all the makings of being the true crime event of the year, so don't miss out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of ParCast's new book, Cult's. That's parcast.com slash cults to sign up today.